Welcome to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. I am your host, singular host, just me, Anatasha Blakely. Wait, Hold on, this is here. wait a wait. second. Uh, Travis, shut up. I'm the second host of this podcast. My name is Andrew Pish, and there are only two hosts to this podcast. Anatasha, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I, we just barely talked to Nicole um, Thurman, this beautiful um, improviser. She was amazing. amazing. She was incredible. Honestly, this conversation was incredible. We were very lucky to have her. I met her in in Cedar City, Utah, she was visiting her partner who is in All's Well That Ends Well with me. And we were in the parking lot talking and, and it was like, wait, 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 wait. You've worked at the Second City? Wait, 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 wait. You know Holly? And it was like all these connecting factors. And then I, I knew I wanted to have a longer conversation with her. And I'm so happy that it was in this format because she dropped a lot of nuggets of wisdom. Yeah, she really is a beautiful artist. And it was great to be able to kind of pick her brain. We talked a lot about the specifics of her experience in writers rooms across Hollywood, including some moments that really scared the crap out of her and her approach to how to get through those moments. It was very inspirational as an artist who lives through multiple phases of a career. It's interesting mentally of how to get, uh, what's a better way to say that? It can be difficult sometimes to be meant, mm, it can be, mm, <laughs> God damn it. Man, if only we had a third host, this would be so much easier, um, but we don't. Um, we also talked about finding your voice as, as an artist and finding it in process and not judging what it is or what it's evolving to be and being adaptable as an artist. I really loved this conversation and I think you will too. So without any further ado, here is our interview with Nicole Thurman. I'm Travis Cox. I'm the third host of this podcast. You're listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. I think our boyfriends are bowling right now. Yeah, they are. They're like also like Instagramming it excessively too, which is adorable. Very cute. They're having a guys night. We're having ladies night over here on the pod. Yeah, so we are. This is part of it. Ladies That's night. Right. Maybe in. don't let Andrew back in. It needs to be two strong women and a feminist. <laughs> That's, <laughs> like, That's right. You know, yeah. like, or in a man with sisters. Otherwise, Pish will really come in with his it. toxic masculinity. It'll be yeah, he'll ruin that. the whole vibe. He's gonna gaslight us. <laughs> I mean, that's just what they do. That's what right? they do. <laughs> that's what they do. It's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be so mad when this is part of the actual podcast. I love it. That's the little uh, cold open for your pod? Yep, exactly. Nice. Is this your apartment in Cedar City? I know that it's a podcast, so nobody can see this, but... Yes, this it's is my nice. apartment. You guys really decorated it. Yeah, Phil told me that he got a candle and was like, called it good. I know that's the thing, too, is like he was, he had the candle and he was like, that makes it an apartment. And I'm like, I don't know if that's it. And he didn't bring any <laughs> pictures. So I brought him a couple of pictures, of course, of me. I was like, <laughs> put some pictures up, buddy. Nice. And he has like a sword. A sword <laughs> is sounds, is just such, that's such a dude thing. <laughs> Be like, I'm going to put a sword on it the It was wall. funny when we first started dating, he was like, why do you want to date me? I have a sword on my wall at home. And I was like, well, I haven't seen that yet because I haven't been to your house. So I wasn't, I didn't know that yet. <laughs> Good for him for like being yeah. upfront though. Yeah. You know? I was like, had you told me, I might've thought re reconsidered. <laughs> um, how did you end up at the second city? Pish is taking so long that I'm just going to ask you questions. I love it. Happening. Um, I ended up at second city. I had like a funny path uh, where I started as just like a straight theater actor and I thought I was going to be just dramatic actor like at Steppenwolf or something like that. And then the year before I graduated, went to Chicago, and applied for a couple internships at Steppenwolf and Second City just kind of because I wanted to get some experience in the theater community there before I moved there. I ended up going with an internship at Steppenwolf, but Second City also offered me one and they were like, well, since you're not doing the internship, if you want to take like a class or two here, you can take one if you just like file papers for a couple hours a week. So I took a free class. And then the same woman was said, if you by any chance want to audition for us after my class was over, if you ever want to audition for us, just give us your headshot and we'll call you in for an audition. They did. And I booked the, I think like the first thing I auditioned for with them, it was just a good match. You know, when it's a match, when that's the direction you should be going in, it just fits immediately. 
And so from then on, I've done only comedy. It felt like a moment of aha for both them and you where you're like, oh, this is ease. And of course, yeah, of course it's this. Yeah. I think it's it's also, yeah, it's so strange because I can't even really remember how I thought. But yeah, I never considered comedy a career path or anything like that. And I remember thinking when I was doing the job at first, this is perfect because I could play an instrument, I can sing, I can do scenes. I was like, yeah, this is actually a perfect match because you get to do all those things on stage and it's so fun, play a million different kinds of characters, which I love playing weird characters. But then, yeah, I, d I didn't know how to improvise. I mean, I had obviously taken one class, but I did not know how to improvise like at all. But I'm a very good mimic. So I would just stand on the back line and kind of watch what everybody was doing. Honestly, I just learned from working with just amazing people at Second City. I'm not, you know, I'm not an improv genius, but I'm, I can definitely call myself an improviser now, and that's fun. Absolutely. <laughs> what was, I love yeah. the idea of being a mimic as an entry point to improv, mm -hmm. because there's something about the complicity of that that I think is inherently good to improv, where you're like, you're doing that, I'll do that. Yeah. I'm curious, too, if you have any, like, memories of those first, you know, I don't know, few few shows or even few years improvising of like, if there's anything that sticks out that was like a big learning lesson or moment for you of change or anything that you would tell yourself if you could go back about like improv. If I could go back and tell myself something about improv, I would definitely, I would definitely tell myself to not depend on the audience for uh, your you know, for what's the word? Not depend on the audience for your confidence. Don't don't get confidence and uh, performance from the audience. The audience is watching. They might be watching and they might be quiet and they might be quiet but smiling. But if you look at the audience and you get angry with them for not laughing, which I saw a lot of people do, and they were typically younger. And I mean, I did this too. I was definitely guilty of it. Then you start to work super hard, play these loud characters, just do too much. It starts to seem desperate. When you're trying to be funny, Everyone can see you. Everyone can see that. When you are funny, people are just enjoying it. And sometimes literally drama can be funny, which is honestly like when I saw King Lear, I thought that. I was like, wow, King Lear is funny as fuck. And this is supposed to be a drama, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If I could go back, that's what I would say. And as far as like if I had like a moment, the first one that came to my mind, I had been working at Second City for a while. I did some shows in Baltimore, D.C. and in Chicago, different stages and things like that. And I understudied a lot in the shows, which is, you know, scary and just a lot of pressure. But it was during the main stage improv set. I did a scene with Steve Waltine, who I'm sure you know Steve Waltine. He's like improvised Shakespeare yes. guy. He was on main stage forever. I, I had a moment of hesitation because I was like, I think I babysat this person's child once. Thomas? And it Yes. And I was like yeah. and but I but I hung out with his wife and dealt with her way more. So I was like, yes, I have met him, but I don't really know him, but like kind of I know his kid. You like peripherally know him. You're like, I know yeah. his genes and his DNA, but not yeah. Great guy. him as a human, <laughs> as a package. I know the uh materials. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I was doing a scene with Steve and you know, the thing I love about Second City is it's like it can be super patient improv so you can establish a relationship with somebody, which is very much my jam. And we were doing this scene where he's first of all, he's so good that there's no way to fail with him because he'll always he finds the game and he'll be like he'll, he'll just look at you like I've got it. And then you're just like locked in. And it was this scene where I was interview, like I, I was playing some kind of dumb woman trope of some sort. And at a certain point, he like asked me why I was trying to interview to be a senator. And he's like, you don't even have to, you don't, senators don't interview. It was something like that, right? It turns out I was a politician trying to be a politician. I don't know. But the scene was just like very quiet. We barely spoke. And when we did, it was just the weirdest things because it was this man trying to interview this person who was just cuckoo bananas. And it was just one of those scenes where I was, could feel in the moment, number one, I'm keeping up with this person. It would be like, you know, professional basketball player. And you're just like, okay, I just like, I, I guarded LeBron and like, I blocked him. I don't know what that means. But anyway, it was one of those moments where I was like, I'm keeping up with this person and... I feel totally comfortable in this moment, not knowing what's coming. And I don't always feel like that. I mean, I mean, I pretty yeah. much never feel like that. So, but I remember just it being just like this magical scene and it was just a goofy scene, but it went on for a long time and the audience was losing it. And I was just like, this is the best. 
<laughs> like this is yeah. incredible. I'm at the main stage. Yeah. It's like it's city with Steve Altine. Like this is just incredible. Yeah, so it, was, it was a lot. It was great. I've got such a big smile listening to that because that's the feeling that is so addicting about improv. Like that's why people fall in love with this art yeah. form is because when you're in it like that and everything's going and you're just comfortable and you're settled and the audience is with you and you're locked into your scene partner there and and you don't know what's coming next there's nothing like it it's so mm. it's just the best oh it's so good yeah i have a tendency when i haven't been going up in a long time like when i haven't done when i haven't done shows in a long time i have a tendency to try to think of a joke what's the funny thing i can say as this character never works but yeah that was that moment where i was just a blank canvas and we were both filling it in as we went and it just was like locked in so good there's yeah. something too about playing with someone the way that you described your view of him at that time Playing with somebody who you respect and you know who will take care of you, especially when I was a younger improviser, when I would hop on stage with people who had been doing it for a very long time, who I respected, it would change my view of how I was supposed to feel on stage. Like I specifically remember like being in classes and like trying all this stuff and then hopping on with one of my mentors, Jet Eveleth. And then, mm -hmm. and then I was, and it changed like overnight. I was like, oh that's how I should feel. Like it should feel fun and easy and, and mm -hmm. like confident and like nothing could go wrong. Every time before you go on stage, everybody at second city pats each other on the back and they say, got your back. And it's honestly so important because I do think on stage and definitely in comedy, people forget that sometimes. And so you end up competing against each other to be the funniest one. But when we all just, when we do have each other's back and really work as a team, we can make this like beautiful work. And it can be just two people, but I mean, as if you're like, you know, actively supporting each other and just flying blind together, that's, yeah, that's when the best stuff can come out, I feel like. I was thinking of that same show, Tosh, that first time that Jet played with Storm Chaser. I was so nervous. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm, she, I, I'm, so, I'm gonna ruin it. It's gonna be, it's gonna be the worst." And then I learned, like, I mean, we, we're always told from the beginning that uh, uh, the best improvisers make their scene partners look good. Mm -hmm. And playing with Jet was the easiest thing we've ever done. Like, she, I, she made us all look so funny. It was mm -hmm. great. All right. Speaking of so funny, here's Andrew Pish. <laughs> Woo! 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 Woo. There he is, Woo. connected to audio. He's doing it. Hello, Woo. sorry about that. Hey, Catastrophic buddy. failures all around. Sorry. We became best friends while you were while you were gone. Really <laughs> Fantastic. Really Hi, did. Nicole. Thank you so much Hi. for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. This is fun. One thing I wanted to say, Nicole, is that what you were talking about of not being um, judgmental of the audience. I, you didn't even phrase it that way. That's the way I think that I heard it. Yeah. I don't know if you said those words I, yeah. because I was like oh yeah, it's like the same thing where you're like, I'm not going to be judgmental of my partner and I'm going to treat them like they're a genius. And I feel like I ought to be doing the same thing with the audience where I'm like, nope, wherever you're at is where you're at. And like, I invite you, yeah, but I, and I treat you yeah. well, but I would never judge you for your reaction to something or not laughing or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. This is kind of not related to that, but I kind of feel that same way about getting a suggestion. Like sometimes we're like, oh, can we, you see improv shows, like, could we get a suggestion? And then the audience will say something like, banana. And the improvisers will be like, uh, can we get a different suggestion? And I'm like, oh, come on. Just, you can do a show on banana. Come on, let's let's do it. Like, yeah, just take treat, it. Treat that suggestion like it's the best suggestion you've ever gotten. I yeah, don't know. You got to yes and it, baby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I totally think that. I think, well, you know, because if you think about it, uh, Tasha, the, imp the audience is improvising with us too. I mean, they don't know what's coming. We don't know what's coming. They, you know, they could end up on stage. They don't know, you know. And yeah, I think that, I mean, comedians of all people should know best because comedians will just sit there and stare and then not laugh typically because, you know, but they'll they'll know when things are funny, but they won't always be laughing their asses off like that. But it's hard when you're on stage because you because comedy does feed off of such immediate uh, reaction like good, bad, woo, you know, like it's obvious. <laughs> But you really don't ever know because it could just be like a bunch of old people in the audience, a bunch of kids. You don't know. But it's like they're all having fun. Usually it's very rare that they're actively <laughs> hating you. So you need to hate them back, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do, do you notice a difference between audiences in Chicago and L.A.? Have you done very much improv in Los Angeles? Yeah. You know what is interesting? is I Because when I was in Chicago, people were always talking about how there were no audiences in L.A. They were like, you, you'll be doing a show and there'll be six people in the auditorium. It's going to be trash. And it's like, okay. 
I'm still going to move there. I don't know. I don't know. I felt like I've never had a really rough show in LA. I always feel like the audiences are super supportive. What's interesting, actually more interesting to me, Chicago versus LA, because it's all, I mean, Chicago people, it's random strangers and tourists coming in. But And in LA, it's mostly performers. But then you go to a city like DC, and you'll be like, oh, they love the smart shit. They don't want you going blue necessarily. They don't want you to dumb it down. They really like smart stuff. It's just interesting to see different audiences in different states. I'm sure, you know, stand-ups probably have that and touring companies probably have that as well, where it's like every audience is going to be different, depends on what kind of that town is about. I feel like strangely... I'm finding that the Utah Shakespeare Festival has a very specific kind of patron mm -hmm. and then a very specific kind of young patron. Yep. So it's like the person who's been coming here forever and then the youth. Yes. And they they react very differently. And I feel like sometimes the biggest laughs that I get is just that they want to feel like they are understanding the poetry in like a heightened way and then will laugh at that almost more than like they don't like when I had that, I do so much butt stuff, you know, yeah. but I, yeah, <laughs> but I like butt stuff. So I'm like trying to find a balance between fulfilling their poetic needs and my butt stuff. You got to compromise so. on the amount of butt stuff that you're going to give to a group of people at any given time. That's the thing. <laughs> um, that's, but that's something, that's something we learned playing with that Natasha a long time ago. Yeah. You, you got to let her have some butt stuff. Okay. You got to have to live have with a little bit of butt stuff. You just have to live with it. You got to live with it. But no, I, I, I need to feel satisfied as an artist, you yeah. know, I'm imagining this is what a touring stand-up feels like is doing different improv festivals or whatever it is, is that I'm like, have a, a moment where I'm like, am I not funny? And then you're like, oh no, we're learning each other and we need a second to learn like what, who, who you are. They want to know if they can and trust then, you. And then we can be yeah, together. Yeah. Yeah, totally. They're like, okay, we see you and like, we're laughing, but we're not ready yet. And then they'll be, you know, fall in love with you by a certain point. Well, I know that the boys have a, a lot of questions for you and so do I. So, but I feel like I've already just inserted myself. So Travis, Pish. Man, I'm just enjoying like the conversation and like hearing your insights so far, even just on like how to work with an audience and listen to them. I really loved what you said that they're improvising with you. I literally never thought of it that way. And I really like that. That's really mm -hmm. great. I actually have a question to piggyback off of that is um, when you're, you know, I feel like a lot of comedians, they build their voice on stages. Mm -hmm. And then when or if you start working in front of a camera, that transition for your like comedic voice mm -hmm. can be like difficult to to transition into that new medium. Definitely. And I'm wondering what your experience of that has been like. Well, it's really, and that's a, a really good question because that <laughs> was such a huge thing for me at Second City. And it's also something I actively fought against until I understood it, to be honest with you. Because as a person of color at Second City, a lot of times it felt like they wanted your voice to be the voice that they hear in their heads when they look at your skin. You know what I mean? And I'm not, mm. I'm not hating on Second City. They gave me my life. Like I, I, I truly owe everything in my career to that place. I've always said the biggest problem I had was that, that I don't want to be boxed in based off of how you see me. And I've always had that my whole life, you know, because people meet me and they're like, what are you? And I'm like, I don't know, what do you mean? I'm black and white, I don't know what is confusing. Or they'll hear my voice and be like, are you British? Which is the weirdest thing. I don't know why people ask me that, but I've been asked that like enough times where I'm like, I, what? <laughs> but I think it's because they don't expect this voice to come out of this body or whatever it is. People are always trying to box you in. The hardest part for me was the more your voice sounds like the voice they want, the more successful you can be in certain venues. In certain, and, and one of them was Second City. But I was never able to kind of tap into that because I don't know what my voice is. I don't know. I didn't know what my voice Like, I don't know. I don't even know who the hell I am. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. You know, like I didn't have like, because I'm black, white, and Jewish. But I didn't, I don't sit there and talk about how I'm biracial and Jewish because I was like barely religious growing up and like, my dad wasn't around really that much. My parents divorced and he was black and that that was our black family. We didn't see them. But, but I do think that in general, obviously the stage is going to be more conducive to you determining what you want to be. The other medium for that would be uh, now TikToks and videos on Twitter. And that is where I found my voice was videos on Twitter, which is so dumb but true. I started making videos because I got bored after I was on a show called The Opposition in 20, 
17 and it got canceled. And I was having a breakdown because it was my first time I was on a canceled show. And I was like, ah, my dreams are crushed. <laughs> so I started making videos. But it's like my point of view, which I realized that people latch onto and enjoy is observing the human condition, but not like as a comedian, but being like, like a weird interaction that you have with somebody. I'll make a video of that. And people are like, oh my God, I feel seen, you know, or like I feel attacked. Like, so anyway, I realized that was my point of view. And so I started to do more stuff like that to finish out the longest answer ever. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think on camera, like TV, they tend to want to start shoving you back into that box again, mm. you know? And if you're, if you're a woman, they want to make you a wife, but it's like women, I would assume like you and I, Tasha, want to play a fucking awesome character. We want to be like a clown. We yeah. want to be like the goofy. We want to be like somebody yeah. dropping books and like falling all over that. Like, I want to be crazy. I like that. I want to be gross. I like that. <laughs> I want to do butt stuff. I want to do butt stuff. Okay. Just use that yeah. as the clip. <laughs> Nicole Thurman's on the show today. I want to do butt stuff. That's yeah. the promo clip. <laughs> That's yeah. the title of the episode, butt stuff. That'll be the clip that they take out of context for like the, the BuzzFeed headline. Always. <laughs> When I did a show in Washington, D.C., the uh, Washington Post interviewed us, and I said, you know, Washington, D.C. audiences are smart. They don't want us just pooping and peeing on stage. You know, they want real comedy. <laughs> you better believe that was the poll quote on the Washington Post. <laughs> I was like, I'm a fucking idiot. I should never have said that. It's always the craziest thing you say. I love You're that. You're not an idiot. I feel like the media, it, they're going to they're gonna find a way to take the most. Always innocuous conversation and just you know always yes and just fart all over it fart all over you poop and poop and pee um but yeah that's my long answer to that i think the best way to avoid that is by making your own stuff which is you know people always were like make your own stuff or like what's your pov and it always annoyed me but then once i started doing it and having more success from it i was like okay i get it now and it's not just because it brought me success it was because it was like what i was saying earlier tasha where when it works it just like links up and then you you're like oh this is the path this is the thing that i do this is the thing that i it's easy for me and people are drawn to it yeah do you feel like that working as a writer the same thing is true like people wanting to kind of put you in in the box of what they expect your voice to be well, that's or do you feel like it's more true as an actor i think it's more true as an actor because as an actor you're you're the product and so when they buy the product they're like okay i imagine the character to be this way and so i'm not going to pick nicole because she <laughs> Sounds like she's British. Just kidding. Uh, you know, but I'm going to pick this person, this other person, because they sound like the idea of what I had in my head. And I think with a writer, everything feels easier. Everything feels lower pressure because you're in a room of like 13 people. You're pitching a billion things a day. You'll get one thing in maybe during the day or whatever. Not everything is going to be your own. It's going to be 13 people's. They want you to fit into the box of the show. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. That just makes sense because they're writing the show and they want it to be a certain way. The person who created it wants to hold on to that vision. What's the best thing about being in a writer's room and the hardest thing about being in a writer's room? Why was the hardest thing? The first thing I thought of was too many snacks and not enough walking around. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing, Nicole. That's my dream. I don't like I have it. a heart attack. It's weird too, because I did not used to be a healthy person, but I do like to work out. And I feel like when I'm like working a nine to five or nine to seven or whatever um, writing job, it can be tough because I feel like you're just kind of always sitting around and then there's always food and they order food every day because the studio pays for it or whatever. So that's, it, I just start to feel kind of gross, which is like, this does not sound like me talking, but that's the one thing that I'm always like, Ugh, I feel gross. I just want to like, like free food and I'm sitting all day. And like, if you get up to like stretch a bunch, like probably you're the only one doing that. So yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a pretty, and it's a pretty sweet job. I mean, that's pretty sweet. I sometimes start to feel a little trapped. I think I just like to be like out and about a little bit more. Uh, and the best thing Oh my, I don't know. Just seeing people say your words. I, I don't know. Every time I'm like, <laughs> because for me, <laughs> like Maya Rudolph is my idol. She's my everything always has been. Every time people ask me like, who do you want to work with? Who do you admire? It's Maya Rudolph. So when I worked on a baking show and she was the host and I got to write for her, it was like insane. You're just like telling her things to say and she's just saying them and you're like, <laughs> this is crazy. You know, and she, 
And they, they, you know, they, they're, she was great. She and Andy Samberg were on the show and they're both super collaborative. They talk to the writers. We're just like hanging out with them and they're, they're really sweet. So it was like, I love that feeling of just being able to, to see what, what you can do and seeing your name at the end of the credits for me, cause I've always been an actor seeing my name in a totally different position saying like writers or like now I'm a story editor on a show. And so it's like, I got a little promotion. So I get to have my name on its own card and like, it's kind of, so yeah, it's like that kind of yeah, stuff. And you just like, like winning WGA awards. Like yeah. it's no big fucking deal. No big deal. No big deal. Go get it. Where is it? We want to see it. <laughs> I had a blanket on my legs. I was making yeah. In fact, I can't believe it's not already on the desk. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Boom, Look baby. at that. Wow, that look at that. Cool. Is that, that a whale called, tail? No, I think it's like, I mean, that's what I always say, but I think it's like a bird right, holding like a, a pen like a or bird. something. I don't know, it's really yeah. weird. Oh, but yeah, cool. and we won for the show that I wrote with Maya Rudolph. So it's like that experience was so awesome. It was just great. If I had that, I would just be holding it in my hand the entire, any podcast I ever did, I'd just be holding it. <laughs> I did do you guys see this? I do sometimes, if I'm sitting on my couch zooming, I'll kind of move over so people can see it. And then they might be like, what is that? And I'll be like, oh, well, it's what is my that? WGA award. <laughs> this whole thing? This whole thing? Excuse I me, was so me. shook um, when I won that. I was so sh I never expected that to happen. So, yeah. That's so incredible. Cool. I want to circle back to something you said about making your TikTok videos about not TikTok, sorry, Twitter videos, about how you found your voice as you made those videos. And I think that's really cool. We just recently, Pish and I, started making TikTok videos. And I think a similar thing is happening. I mean, not that we're make, breaking any ground or anything, but like we're kind of finding our comedic style as we make the videos. And I think a lot of people, and maybe people listening to this podcast might think that they have to figure out what their voice is first yeah. and then they can make videos. And I just think it's a really interesting point that making the videos is what helps you clarify your voice. Well, I think that's, uh, if, when you say it like that, I mean, I think it's like, it's almost like improvising. It, 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 you find the game as you go. A lot of times it's just, you know, we're all funny people. Like we can tweet or we can say things. So it's kind of just like discovering and stumbling around until suddenly you like, holy shit, that went viral as fuck. That's cool. Obviously we say we don't do it for the audience, but also you see what people are liking and enjoying. And so then I would notice every time I would say like, I'm an idiot that doesn't know how to talk to human beings. People would be like, ah, you know, or whatever it was. Instagram observations or anything like that. I think it's kind of one of those things where it's okay to stumble into it. And I think if you feel that you need to pre-construct the box before you start working, you're probably gonna number one, delay your work and number two it's forcing it a lot of times because you think like oh i want to be like tim robinson style comedy but it's like tim robinson is tim robinson mm -hmm. so you're sitting here making this box that looks just like tim robinson and then you're gonna try to do it except for he's you're gonna do it better because that's him yeah. yeah it's almost like what you said earlier yeah. about being like well i'm still figuring out who i am yeah and you're like, I know my voice because when it feels good and it feels authentic, but like, what are you going to write an essay about your voice? You're like, no, I'm just making the thing and I know what I like. Mm -hmm. And that is my voice and yeah. leave it up to somebody else to put it in a box. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can tell me what genre this is. Yeah. I just am doing something I like. Yeah, you tell me what my brand is. I'm not a marketing person. So, you know, I, or PR person, I'm just making random shit and sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't. I don't think prepackaging helps you, especially because if I had done that, if I had said, oh, thank you so much for the advice, I will be black, white, and Jewish comedian. That's all I will, that's what I will be. <laughs> And then I start writing jokes and I don't know nothing about nothing. Come on. You wouldn't know but like me. Everybody would be like, this bitch, is, what's she doing? Yeah. I really, really hard with that being like half Chinese and half white. And then, you know, I'm like ex-Mormon and like what this and that and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, but that's not like really, like I really, truly am a butt comedian. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but truly I'm like, I... I you know, who you are, I'm like, yeah, but I couldn't describe it. It's not so simple as that because I don't just like sit around talking about how I'm half Chinese all the time. Well, that's the thing. They would literally never ask a white dude, what is your point of view? They would just let him be funny. And so that's my yeah. problem with it too, is that they want to box you in. I did, they just want, 
too. But it's like a lot of times it's just the same with being a white guy. Like being a white guy is not what you talk about. You're not like, oh, white guy, white guy. Hey, white guy, white guy. You know, and like, we're not like, you know, hey, black person. You know, it's like, we're not like biracial. That's me. Because people will be like, you're weird. We just live our lives in these bodies. And our experiences are our point of view, not how, not the genetics. Mm. Yeah. Because we're kind of hitting on like, how comparison can be really destructive to your work, like comparing mm -hmm. yourself with a Tim Robinson, but then also like comparing yourself to like perhaps a box that either the people who are giving you work want you to be in or a box that you think maybe you should be in. Mm -hmm. Kind of going along with this, I'm wondering, because I feel like every writer deals with issues, writer's block and stuff like that, and especially a comedian, if they're in a writer's room all day and they haven't had any of their you know, suggestions go anywhere. Have you come across moments where you've had to face writer's block or like these like dark night of the soul moments in a writer's room? And what did you do, if anything, to get through those moments? Oh my God, I'm laughing because I wanted to show you if I have it in here, my, um... <laughs> I have it, um, my notebook from the last job I was working and I had a day where everything I pitched was trash. Uh, which is funny because the show's called Everything's Trash. Watch it, it's great. Um, but like everything I pitched was just like not working and I just felt so stupid. And I wrote on my notebook, kill me. <laughs> <laughs> kill me now, kill wrote, me. Kill me. And then I wrote, kill me. Anyway, um, oh I was going to see if I wrote anything fantastic. else. Because I, yeah, I wrote, kill me. Um, and I think, I'm pretty sure one of my coworkers had written something like that too and showed me like one day just because it's not, the thing about that's great about writers' rooms, and that's also hilarious about writers' rooms, and it's like a funny secret, I feel like, there's typically like one or two writers that ain't doing nothing. They're just sitting there chilling. They can get away with it because it's a big room and everybody's contributing and collaborating. So some days you can be a little quieter if you want, but some days for me, it's like I can't help but pitch, even when I tell myself I don't want to pitch. <laughs> I'm like, bitch, don't say nothing. Yesterday you wrote, kill me in your book. Don't pitch nothing today. But then I start pitching and then I just keep getting shot down. But one of the producers on Everything's Trash, who's also a writer and she's been in the business forever, she said, everybody says it, but I thought it was so cool. She's like, we all have to eat shit every now and then. We, I mean, you do. Because it's like the same thing with improv. If you fail, fail big. And it's a terrible feeling, especially when you're in a writer's room on Zoom. It's horrible. <laughs> The silence is deafening. You are, it's so embarrassing. My face gets hot, I start sweating. But it's like, if I didn't pitch stuff, then I wouldn't have anything in the show. So, you know, and I've also learned, sorry, my answers are very long. I haven't, maybe I haven't talked enough today to people, but. Um. <laughs> no, this is, the per this is the perfect medium for okay, this. Good. You know what I mean? Like we're here to like soak up your wisdom. But yeah, just seeing that and seeing her say that, and she's like really, really good. And then there's also, I think, something that I learned because I had never been in a, narrative like scripted room before until I wrote on everything's trash that was a 20-week job which is a lot for me story breaking writing rewriting and it was like honestly you know it was the same thing I'm a mimic so I just sit back and watch what everybody's doing and then I'm like okay I can do this job it's terrifying but I've managed to squeak by doing that you also learn where your strengths are I, I did anyway I learned I I I'm not good at story breaking <laughs> <laughs> I can't necessarily come up with story, but I can come up with like hell of a joke. I can come up with dialogue, stuff like that. And so that's where when I'm pitching, I'll pitch real hard. Like when we rewrote my episode for Everything's Trash, I was just barreling. Like the showrunner was like, you're so good with like making people sound like real people. And I'm like, yeah, I got a skill. You know, I just didn't have it while we were story breaking. But it's hard because it's like if you're story breaking for 10 out of the 20 weeks, you're like, Am I terrible at my job? I mean, you, you're, you're still going to be okay, but you're definitely going to have a lot of shit-eating moments and you just have to kind of eat it. Hmm. Failure, we're going to say failure with quotation marks because what does failure mean? But that, it's such an essential part of the creative process. Mm -hmm. you, you, can't, you can't create anything without that part of it. But man, does it suck. Oh, it's it's, and I can only imagine in a room full of like genius creatives, here's this thing that I thought of and I that I think is good and valuable. Do you want it? No. They don't okay. even say no. They just sit there and look at you like, <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, oh my God, they didn't say nothing, oh my God. And it's just like, you wait for the next person to talk because when it's a good idea, everybody starts you know riffing off of it. Uh, oh. And so you know when it's a bad idea because nobody riffs. 
<laughs> but yeah, but it's yeah. like an improv scene where everyone's like, "Oh, I, have, I like wants to jump into it mm -hmm. for better or worse." They everybody's like, "That looks fun. That looks fun. I want to touch it." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How did you first get into a writer's room? I feel like I've never worked in a writer's room. It's something that interests me, but because coming from a performance side and really only ever writing on my own, it seems a little foreign to me. So I'm wondering if you can demystify that process for me. I can demystify it because I didn't know and I still don't know what I'm doing. And I always feel like I'm somebody snuck me in and they're going to be mad at me when I leave. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> thank God this job is over because that person was an idiot, you know? Um, and even if they are, who cares? I got paid. The check's clear. Come on now. So how did I get into it? I... It was Twitter. It was crazy. The pandemic was just very interesting because for me, the only job I had when I when the pandemic first started was I had just gotten my first big voiceover job. And so I was like doing cartoon voices and stuff. And it was like my I was like, oh, this is so fun. And we only recorded once in studio before everything shut down. And then I was like, okay, so we're recording from home, but that's not going to pay the bills. And then I was just doing the same thing I do all the time, tweeting, being goofy, I used to have a hot hand with tweets and I had a lot of viral tweets and, you know, people followed me that <laughs> write TV shows and, you know, produce and do all these things. And I think because, because I could write a joke, people were like, oh, she's a writer. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, I can do how much? Oh, wow. Absolutely. So it was interesting because that's kind of how I got into it. Somebody did recommend me for my first writing job, Robin Thede, who is the creator of Black Lady Sketch Show and who is also very supportive to all of her friends. She recommended me for a job with like a handful of people, but the head writer looked at my tweets and then offered me the job. Because he was like, I saw your tweets and they were really funny. So that's why you got the job. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense though that yeah. you would have a hot hand at that because I feel like you're very funny in life. Thank like you. as a social person, yeah. just so you're aware. <laughs> Thank you. I try to be. Yeah. I mean, I, sometimes I annoy myself because I'm like, bitch, you don't have to be funny every time. Just calm down. Just let everybody else talk <laughs> and do their thing for a little bit. This ain't the Nicole show. Come on. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so the, it really was just like, and I think actually there are a lot of people that, that end up like that with Twitter taking them into a writer's room. So then my next job after the first job was writing for the Emmys. And the reason I got that job was because Jimmy Kimmel's wife, who's his head writer, follows me on Twitter and thought I was funny. She showed my tweets to Jimmy and they hired me. And I was like, what? They just called me and were like, do you want to write for the Emmys? And I cried because I, I had just tested for a pilot <laughs> oh. and I didn't get it. And I was like, yes, I want to write for the Emmys. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just one of those interesting things too. Where I feel like once you've started in that world, it, you quickly make so many connections. One of your coworkers will be a head writer on another job, which has happened to me before. Or like a producer that you work with just really enjoys your presence on set. And, and then she's producing something else. So she recommends you. So yeah, it's been a, it was a weird transition, but then once it started again, it was another one of those things. And I, I don't say no to those types of things. When the path is revealing itself and saying, walk down this path, it doesn't matter if you're an actor, I just walk down it. Hmm. That's a, a brave thing to be like, oh, when the door opens, I will walk. Whether or not I feel ready or think that I am just going to start walking down it. You're such a storm chaser. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. That was very, very helpful. Yeah. I, I feel like I spend a lot of time writing in my solitude world, but the improviser in me feels like a writer's room would just be like, like hanging out with these fucking idiots. It literally is. I mean, we did, we were on zoom doing it. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's totally, it's, it's really just sitting in a room riffing every day. Sometimes it's tedious, of course. I'm not really much of a nine to fiver, so that part of it is hard for me, but like, it's not as hard as you think it's gonna be. And even if it is, you find one person in the room that doesn't know what they're doing too, and you're like, yo, <laughs> what are they talking about? <laughs> and like me, in my last room, this, the showrunner was, uh, he's so experienced. I mean, he was a writer on Happy Endings, like he's just done a million things. And so I was nervous, but then also he would say phrases. I didn't know what they meant. I didn't even, full, I'm not even tell you what I didn't know what I meant, but I like that was so you just Google it, <laughs> you know, you fake it till you make it. I feel like everybody's doing it, that. but I, th I think I, I've, I've met like other writers who've had trouble getting jobs. And I think maybe it's because they're making it seem to, oh, I'm looking through the glass when actually it's just like a bunch of yokels sitting around, you know, being dorks. <laughs> I love it. I really love I that love a it. lot too. Yeah. It's one of the terrifying things about 
being an adult though, is you sort of realize that nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. And that includes like your surgeon <laughs> and like, like nobody knows what they're doing for sure. Everyone's just figuring uh, it they're out. They're all just, exactly. We're all just trying to figure it out and nobody really knows what they're doing. My doctor the other day, as he was removing a portion of the skin on my back, because he was worried it might be cancerous. Long story short, it's not cancerous. He was relating to me how he was blackout drunk at a bachelor party. <laughs> Absolutely not. What's his name, Chad? He's like, don't call me Dr. Smith. Call me Chad, okay? <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's this terrifying. man's got a scalpel half an inch in my back. That's terrifying. The real doctor opens the door and is like, Chad, what are you doing in here? <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. That's my son. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, that is terrifying. It is. It's crazy, though. It is. It's like, that's the same thing we were talking about, about when I used to see, like, 30-year-old women dancing and I'd be like, ew, they're so old. And like now I am that age and I'm like, no, we're still all children just walking around in bod big bodies that can have sex. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But those but those 40-year-olds, they're so they're old and gross. So old. Yeah. I'll never be that old. Nasty. Yeah. <laughs> As the person who is closest to being 40 years old, I'm not going to comment. So I'm close to I just don't like to say my age on mic. <laughs> I try to keep it a mystery. I never used to do that, but then LA started making me feel like I shouldn't see how old I was because people would be like, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm like, okay, slow down. I'm yeah. just you can react yeah, you're gonna a little be that judgmental. Like, yeah. gentler. Like, yeah. oh my God, you look so good for how disgustingly old you are. I was like, all right, I don't need this. Whoa, buddy, where are you going? All right, all right, what's all the fuss? What's that? This would be a good place for an ad? No, I know we don't have a sponsor, but I wonder what one would sound like if there was one. Ooh, it's a scorcher out there. Are you feeling the burn? Why don't you beat the heat with an ice cold storm chaser hard seltzer? The most refreshing seltzer ever invented. What kind of alcohol is it? Do you care? Storm Chaser Hard Seltzer. I'll chase that storm. Antasha brought up being a someone who, you know, chases and does things that are scary for them. Mm -hmm. What's one of the scariest jobs you've said yes to? <laughs> I'll tell you what it was. It was the last one. And I still don't even know why I said yes to it. And I should have gotten fired. I worked on the ESPYs. Girls, I know you're not all girls, but I'm gonna call you girls because, oh my gosh, y'all. This was a job. This was one of those moments where a producer I had worked on on another show recommended me and the head writer happened to be my old coworker. So they just gave me the job. And I was like, bless you. I appreciate it. I wasn't doing anything. And it was like a very quick job. But oh my gosh, I know nothing about sports. And like I thought I knew a little <laughs> bit, but I don't know anybody's names. I don't know what they do in the sports. I don't know nothing. Uh, and so like, I would just be like, oh my God, every joke I had to write took me forever. I had to Google it, stress, text <laughs> Phil that I was gonna die and they're gonna fire me. I'm like, this is so bad. I've only written three jokes. So it was, it was, it was scary because it was true. It was one of those moments where you're like, I'm gonna be exposed or I feel bad because I'm not contributing as much as I could. But I ended up kind of just, again, finding my way into it, which is trying to talk about like, human nature more than sports. It was kind of funny because I would say, okay, I have an idea for a joke. And like, it's like this, this is the structure for it. And this is the joke, but can you guys take that and make it sports? <laughs> and then they would do it and it would go in the show. Nice. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Well, it but was yeah. probably, it was probably hard as someone from England to know a lot about American sports. So oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, me and my crumpets and tea. That's, a, that's amazing. Amazingly adaptable, though, to not start at this place where you're like, oh, God, wait, I don't know that much about sports to realizing you're like, no, I can write funny stuff. I just mm -hmm. don't know some of the particulars. Mm -hmm. And to be able to communicate that to your coworkers and say, hey, can you help me figure out how to make this sports related? That's like incredibly honest. Mm. And I feel like that would require so much courage and like self-knowledge to get to that point. Well, I feel like I am a very self-aware person slash... I'm a Nicole hater sometimes. And so I call out, I'll be like, hi, I'm Nicole. I suck at X, Y, Z. And it's like, why'd you do that? I don't know. I just did it. You know, I think it was because I was like, I can't do anything. 
when he's asking for quick pitches of jokes, I'm not quick pitching jokes because I've just got nothing. And I felt like I wasn't contributing very much. And I was very scared. Like it was a legitimately scary job for me. And I started off by kind of like quietly telling one of my coworkers, like, I don't know how I got here. And she was like, what? Because they all were geniuses <laughs> about sports. They were so smart and so funny. Mm. Once I realized you're in there for a reason, which is every job, really, you have to remember that you're in there for a reason. They don't need you to come with the hot sports takes. They've got all of the sports takes and all of the references. What can you bring to the table? Yeah, I think there's something to be said about like setting expectations, clarifying like your skills and your strengths so people know what they can ask of you. Yeah. I think that's important. I also just want to say real quick, because you're being, you know, very humble and self-deprecating in a in a great way. But the person who recommends you to that job, they don't recommend you if they don't know you're hilarious. Yeah. Like, you earn you earned that spot. You know what I mean? Like you earned your spot in that room. Yeah, it's so, really hard to, to remember that kind of stuff sometimes. Mm. I think one other thing that's really cool about writing is it shows you so much about performing and you get to watch so much of like what kind of behavior on set and just in general inspires confidence and is fun to work with. When a performer is always talking about how bad they are. And I don't mean like, was that okay? Because a lot of famous people, they do that after a take, they'll be like, was that good? And you're like, yes, it was fucking genius because you're a genius. But I mean like when somebody is just like, I'm a pile of mud and garbage. I don't know why I'm on set right now. You know, if you were like that, then nobody would want to be around you because they'd be like, this person is not selling themselves to me. Instead, if you're like, listen, this ain't my thing, but this is. And so if you want to do this, I'm down. It just helps because then it's like, they believe in you still, but they also are gonna navigate with you to like a new direction or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You seem very adaptable. And I'm wondering if that's something that comes inherently to you. Do you think improv helped inform that or comedy helped inform that? Or is that something that you've always been able to sort of jump in the deep end and then mimic until you found your own confidence? Well, it's interesting because I, uh, I'm kind of a control freak. Somebody was literally telling me this morning, like your childhood was a little bit wild and you never knew what was going to happen. So that's why you're always trying to figure out what's going to happen instead of just letting it happen. So a lot of times I try to control life and my anxiety typically comes from trying to know what's going to happen. Tell me the answer. Do you like me or not? Do you want to go play basketball or not? Just tell me, am I going to lose? You know. So I start freaking out. But I think there is something that improv and performance like that because I've never been super competitive in comedy. I've always felt collaborative in comedy and that's what I've enjoyed about it. I think it makes it easier. But I also, and I want to say it's luck, but I, I know I shouldn't say that, but it, I do think that I get very, I, in a way get very lucky in that the adaptations come to me and I get to choose whether or not I'll say yes. Like, do you want to be a writer? Yes. I don't know. I'll just say yes, you know, because why not? They're going to pay me money. <laughs> And I work for money. <laughs> it's happened a lot. Like where voiceover, I wanted to do animation for a long time, but like it never really came to me. But what it did, I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I feel like a lot of times the opportunities come to me and then I just accept them. You just say yes and you mimic your partner and <laughs> then you both look great. Yeah, I just do exactly the same thing as everybody. I just copy off people's paper, okay? <laughs> <laughs> improv, baby. Yes, improv, baby. I've been thinking a lot about how like improv tips apply to life. And you're, you're touching on one that I've been thinking about a lot, which is one of the first improv lessons I, that really stuck with me was from TJ Penrod of Cedar City, Utah, uh, off the cuff. And he was like, when you do improv, you gotta, gotta remember to fuck your intentions. Like, <laughs> you might come into a scene with intentions of how it's gonna go. Yes. You have this idea of what you want and how it's gonna play out and what the scene's gonna oh be. Well, your scene partner's gonna come in and fuck it all up. And you have to be able to let that go. And Quickly. I think that's life, man. Like we have these ideas of what our careers are going to be or what paths we're going to go down or how things are going to shake out. And then something's going to come along your way and it's going to change that. Absolutely. And if you can release control a little bit and kind of go with what life gives you, you're going to find yourself in these great situations that you never imagined. Absolutely. So when the opposition got canceled, that was my first like series, regular job, big job. I moved to New York. I thought I was going to be the next Hassan Minaj. And then I was just Nicole Thurman still. And I was like, dang, <laughs> that could have been so easy. <laughs> could have been so easy. That show would have been successful. God damn it. I really totally, totally agree with that. And I think that 
the friends I see struggle the most are the friends that refuse to be anything but an actor. And I used to be like that too. Cause I was like, I was like, I'm just an actor. And like, I don't like how these comedians are like laughing on stage and being weird and unpredictable. But then it's like saying I was just an actor and I didn't write and what I didn't have a POV or whatever was very limiting to what I was doing. And yeah, I think it's just like, you can, you can literally never predict it. The people that I see struggle the most are the ones holding on to one thing and not, not, number, not diversifying and not letting what's coming to them come to them. I definitely, I always say go down the path. I used to be an actor and like, I don't book jobs very much anymore or at all. And I'm not worried about it necessarily yet because I'm just doing what's there for me. And right now it's voiceover and writing. It's been very good to me. So I, if I had said, no, I'm not a writer, even like, cause you know, it's like fake it till you make it. So it's like, even if you have to fake it, you go down the path that's opening up to you. And unless you wanna just fucking struggle without a machete through the vines and leaves on the other path, which I'd like, why? Why would you do that? Cause also in entertainment, everything comes together. You could end up having your own show one day. So then you'd be writing, producing, show running, and you'd know how to do all those things because you did them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there is something to be said about the ease of, like, you're you're still working hard and challenging yourself and doing something, you know what I mean? But it was the thing that energetically was in alignment with you in that moment and was saying yes, and you said yes, as opposed to the challenge of something that as opposed to growth, it's, it's, it's fighting against you and, and is, you know, shutting the door mm -hmm. on you. I think, and yeah. both of those things are hard work, yeah. but one of them feels good. One of <laughs> them like just good feels, hard work. yeah, cause it's like, it's exhausting to do it the other way. It's, I've been taking this like class or whatever, and it's like willfulness versus willingness. Willfulness, I believe is like a closed hand and willingness is an open hand, like ready to accept whatever comes your way, radical acceptance, I'll deal with it, this is what it is. The more you can just radically accept and be more willing and open your hands, the more you're gonna get, I mean, truly. Whoa, so wait, you've read Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock? No, I haven't, but I've heard of it. But you've heard of it. Okay, man, it's such, I feel like it's such a powerful idea for the creative process, but also for your career path with you. And I've never thought of it in that, from that perspective before, like stages of your life and just kind of following the flow of where you are in mm -hmm. your life. Well, I start, yeah, I, I, I learned a lot through therapy because I really needed to learn to let go of shit that wasn't for me and let go of, um, just the feeling of holding on to things. Cause like my whole family hmm. has always been like that. It should be like this. It should be like that. This is what a family should be. This is what friends should be. And it's like, yeah, but they fucking aren't. So like figure out a way to work with what they are. Hmm. So I started that in therapy where, cause I used to wake up in the morning. I used to wake up in the morning and my old therapist would call it a moody morning. You're having a moody morning. I would be fucking depressed in the morning and wake up and be like, <laughs> what's wrong with me? Why am I so depressed? I just woke up. You know, I'd be mad at myself for being in a bad mood and that made it worse. And then once I just learned to kind of be like, okay, I'm in a bad mood. That's okay. I'm going to go with it. I'm just going to, I'm not going to push against it. I'm just going to kind of lean into it. Maybe I'll stay in bed an hour longer if I have the time. Once you start doing that, it's like, I stopped waking up in a bad mood. I'm just waking up, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And it's like, I do feel like since I've been learning about like radical acceptance and all of that, like we, I, I haven't read the book, but I'll check it out. But like, it's, it's just such a beautiful concept, especially for me, I'm very bad with change and transition. And it's really good to just be like, this is what it is. No judgments on it. No, nothing. Just these are the facts of what's happening. And that's what, that's what it is. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, I don't know. It works. Yeah. That's so I cool. That. Thanks. And now here's an example of how good tips for living a good life also apply to improv. You just find yourself at a scene, just accept it. These are the facts. This is how it is. Yeah. Like, I love it. You cannot, like if somebody's like, you know, you wanted to be a barber and they come out and try to be your husband, you know, reading the paper and you're like, but I'm going to give you a haircut. Everybody be like, why is that person like forcing a haircut <laughs> on this man? Like what's happening? Yeah. You know, it's um, so good. it looks ridiculous. So yeah, you just go, you just accept what is being presented to you. I needed to hear that so bad today. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm Thank glad. you. I'm glad I could bring that to you. Yeah. It's hard because <laughs> I think you guys are 
you guys are coming to a transition with the shows coming to an end and like it's always like well what's next what's next sometimes it's like i don't know the gap between gigs it's so hard for any artist i mean it obviously applies to actors and writers but really anyone who's in a creative field that's like kind of freelancing their their gig life that when you get a gig it's like this is the best i'm living my dream Everything is awesome. And then that gig ends and you're like, oh, no. Yeah. Where am I? It's so crazy because you literally, it's like you go from making all this money to nothing just like that. And it's just like, okay, okay, I will be okay. And the thing is, too, my mom started saying this and I started. Now I'm like, I get it because it's like I, I I stopped being so freaked out between gigs because I it works. It works out. What would be on your... Sort of bucket list. I mean, I know you have a bunch of different paths, like, but do you have like a performance bucket list item or a, a writer's bucket list item, anything like that? I definitely want to be a series regular on a show. Now I feel really super like mentally strong and like ready to do something like that. And so I want to do something like that. And then like, I love that. I want to be on a, sh- I want to do something with Maya Rudolph as an actor. I would be like a dream. Yeah. I really do. Cause I just think she's so funny. I just want to say, this podcast, uh, Shane Hartline talked about wanting to audition for SNL, uh-huh. and then he did. Uh-huh. Uh, Brendan Jennings, we made a joke about him playing a serial killer because he's such a lovable, goofy guy, and then he did. <laughs> uh, BOC talked about wanting to get an agent, and then he did. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying, this podcast is magic. I'm ready. I'm taking credit. By the way, if you guys are listening, I'm taking credit Please for do. all of your success. You guys yeah. are like, yeah. good luck, Chuck, or whatever, you know? Hey, so, yeah. Nicole, so, Nicole, you live in L.A. now, but have you become L.A.? Do you have a vision board? Do you manifest? No, but <laughs> manifesting, I would say I kind of do. I kind of do it. I don't do it as much as I used to. Like, every year, I, I write down intentions for the year. And I do kind of believe in manifesting. I have one manifesting story. It was when I first started on the opposition I moved to New York and before I had moved there like over the summer I had been staying at this Airbnb in Greenpoint and I was like this is so nice I would love to live in a place like this but the only re- the only way I would move back to New York is if I got a job on something like the Daily Show and I'll tell you what I got a job on the opposition I moved to New York and I realized after I got my apartment it's on the same street as the Airbnb oh so it was like it all came, it really did come. I think being specific about what I wanted, it worked. So I, and I think that happens to, I think that does happen to a lot of people. Once the, once the dream gets more specific, then maybe you go harder for it. I don't know what it is, but it, it, it seems to work. I love that. Yeah. Well, we're putting yeah. it out into the universe for you. Right. Yeah, we are. Yeah, I we always are. explain it as a marathon and you're like running with all these people and then you like look over and someone fell and you look over and someone stopped and you're like, okay, I'm just gonna keep running. And eventually, I mean, there's honestly, everybody's gonna work if they just keep running. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've never seen, yep. I the only, the people I've seen being successful are the people that are just still running. It doesn't mean that they're like all of a sudden amazing. <laughs> it's just that they don't give up. Yeah, one of my teachers was saying, you know, cause I was uh, expressing some disappointment like at where I was in my career. Yeah. And he said, yeah, but you're comparing yourself to people who live in traditional workforces mm-hmm. where the rate is just like promotion, promotion and, you know, moving upward. Mm-hmm. And he said, what if you measured your success by how long you've stayed around yes. and you've kept working? Yes. Well, because yep. we're always looking at the end. We're always looking at the ma- the biggest goal. And I used to do this too. And that's, a, you know, it's a workaholic thing. It's a good thing, but it's also bad because you're forgetting all along the path, there's all these all this cool shit happening to you, even if it isn't even work related. It's something that's going to form you into the person that you're going to be when you get to the end. But it's like, it's really sad to think that you would go through your whole life wanting more and then realize that you had so much. <laughs> I'm not trying to be, I'm not yeah. trying. I think I'm in a very philosophical headspace right now, like very emotional headspace. And I think that I've I've done that so much in the past of like not paying attention. And so if there was a while too, where I guess this is pretty LA too, where I, I keep a journal where all I do is like scream. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this man. piece of shit was so fucking rude to me today. You know, and I'm like, I'm like, I don't mean to do that. It's just, I always end up ranting in my journal. It's like 50 pages at this point. I'm just like, <laughs> at the end of the entry, I'll always put five things I'm grateful for. And that mm. always changes my mood around. <laughs> I feel like I'm being such a nerd on this. I'm sorry, but no, I do. I, I like do morning pages, show. and and I 
oh, yeah, spew, spew, spew. And a lot of times once it's out of my body, I'm like, okay. Like I feel better after having gotten it out. And and then you are yeah. like, why am I even worried about this? I got all this stuff. And like, that's yeah. kind of what it ends. It always ends up putting me in a better headspace. We've had several guests on this podcast um, cry. So for being a comedy oh. improv podcast, you're, you're, you're right on brand for us. This oh. is perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. I'm in the right <laughs> space for this. That you haven't great. cried yeah. yet though. So like, let's, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm going to get the water going, okay? I'm gonna, I, I promise I can act. I promise I can act. I know I can. Um, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> funny. Yeah. I want to do a callback to something you said at the very beginning when you were talking okay. about advice to improvisers, which is don't rely on the audience for your confidence. Yeah. And I think that really is a valid point for artists in the, doing the thing. You know, like yeah. you can't rely on the results or the casting directors or the jobs for your confidence. You can't rely on those things because you can't control those things. You don't know what's going on with those things. So you have to pursue things that are fulfilling to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pish and I get up and do improv still, you know, because we love it. Like it's mm-hmm. not, it's not moving our careers forward that we know of, but mm-hmm. it fulfills us. It's, 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 it's rewarding in and of itself. And I think it's important for any artist to find those things that are not results dependent. Yeah, if you think like the only things that matter are stuff that's gonna get me ahead. I, I, I feel like in Hollywood, <laughs> those people are very unattractive because to anybody. Well, it's not sustainable either because if yeah. you're relying on the other sources for your staying power, for your for your fulfillment, you're gonna run out of gas. Right. If you're yeah, if if you're only if you only feel good about yourself when you have a job, you're gonna be in trouble, especially in mm-hmm. this world. Yeah, people are always looking for the next, the next, the next. And it's like, why don't you like take a pottery class? Because <laughs> yeah. like some of the happiest times I've had. Today I went to a motherfucking pool. It cost way too much money. I just went to the pool. I get a day pass. I sat there all day. I had the best time of my life. I didn't think about stupid anything, comedy or writing or acting related. You know, and like I took a pottery class and like doing something with your hands, doing something creative that isn't, that isn't your moneymaker feels so good. Especially because when we start to, I think it was, it is Billie Eilish that said, things I once enjoyed just keep me employed yes. now. Yes. I literally, that lyric stuck out to me like last week and I was like, whoa. And it's I mean, so I started taking martial arts classes because I was like, I want something that's for me that will never be about making money. That it, it really is like to right. fulfill me. And if you're going to take, right. you know, try to be an artist for a living, it's like so important yeah. to tap into why you loved it and and just having hobbies and things that you're like, no, yeah. I'm a terrible painter. I love painting. I'm never going to sell a painting. I love it. Exactly. Cause you don't, there's no, there's no pressure. There's no need to be like, this has to be right or else I won't have health insurance next year or whatever it is. You can just zone out, do the thing, play the instrument, make this ugly pot. I went to this like one day workshop. Cause I was just also, cause I've, you know, been, you know, I'm like, my partner's not in town. I'm just like fucking flying solo this summer. And I'm like trying to find something to do because I have no job. Uh, So I went to this like one day workshop and it was just so funny because at the end of it, I kept being like, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I had such a great time. I'm going to come again. And I was like all by myself, like just really overdoing it. And they kept looking at me like, okay, bitch, we get it. You made a fucking mug, chill. Uh, But it was so, it felt so like, it gave me like, energy spirit mm-hmm. back because I was feeling like dead, you know? Do you have the mug? Oh, yeah. Can we see I it? See I want to see it. It's, it's, as, it's as important as the award. Yeah. It's, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. it's big. Hold on. It's <laughs> so stupid. It has lips on it because I have lips. <laughs> oh. A star. Yes. A star and a heart. And it's really big. I love it. I love it. Cool. Okay. Nice, right? Yeah. I want to do my best to describe it for people listening, even though you did. So it's, it's, it's actually very impressive. It's a nice, uh, it's kind of like a bluish gray. Uh, did you throw that on a wheel? No, it was a hand built. Hand sculpted. Okay, I like that. It's got a nice handle. And then it has, yeah, a cutout of heart, lips, and a star on the front. It's, it's really very nice. cute. Uh, yeah. You can see it on, yeah, it's so cute. That's, Is that I what you're drinking that. your coffee out of now? I have done it Heck a few yeah. times. It even goes in the dishwasher. Oh my God. I, I mean, oh, wow. Oh, that's wow. a real deal. Yeah, that's yeah. a real last mug. All right, next time in LA. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to go make a mug. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so fun. I mean, I don't want to start gushing over them again because they'll probably hear me and be like, oh, my God, that loser somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really fun. I, I highly recommend it. 
That's yeah. great. We could really make Anatasha jealous and the three of us could go. That would be great. Ooh, let's do go. it. And then we'll just take a bunch of pictures and send them uh -huh. to you like, ha ha. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you um, for sharing so much of your wisdom. And I just can't wait to follow your career and you're delightful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You this dropped so, so nice. many nuggets along the way that are definitely going to stick with me. So yeah, thank thanks for being you. here. Thank All you right. so much. I really appreciate it. This was great. Butt stuff on three. One, two, three. Butt, butt, butt stuff. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. You can find us on all of the socials. That's right. The social media programs. We're on Instagram and TikTok at Storm Chaser Improv. We've also got videos on YouTube. Just search for us at Storm Chaser Improv. We've got shows. We've also got clips from our podcast. And you can find all the other links that we have to get tickets to our shows and find other projects that we're working on at the link in our bio on Instagram. And of course, my friends, if you enjoyed this podcast, push all the buttons, share it, like it, subscribe to it. And if you're listening on iTunes, give us a little five star review. That would be fantastic. This is my friend, Travis Lincoln Cox. This is my friend, Andrew Pish. And this is my friend, Anatasha Blakely. Thank you so much for listening. See you all again soon. Thank you for listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show.